0: Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm John.
1: I'm Robin. And I'm Savannah.
0: Together, we research and break down complex and even controversial topics facing our society. We always aim to bring you honest analysis, backed by research, to skew our bias towards what can be factually supported, and to make it clear when we're giving our opinion versus speaking about actual research. We're human. We have blind spots and biases, and they will show through. However, our goal isn't to convince you to see things our way. We want to build a foundational understanding of these complicated topics so that we can address them together.
1: We talk about some pretty heavy stuff on this show and we tackle topics that might feel polarizing. But we do that because we have an important goal in mind. We want to change the way that people have hard conversations and we think that we can do that using research and discussion to create common understanding. And since you're here, We hope you want the same thing. So we suggest getting comfortable
0: and maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. Welcome to our fireside.
1: This week, this week, we are going to start doing the hard work of untangling the messy interaction between white nationalism, evangelical Christianity, and Trumpism. Uh, Last week, we shared the listener question that inspired this series, and we talked about some basic definitions that we're going to use as we move through the series. So if you are here and you haven't listened to that one yet, we really encourage you to head there first you'll get uh, some good understanding. To borrow a phrase that I've encountered a lot, actually, in evangelical circles, that episode will help you understand the heart behind our approach to this series. Why do we even care to take this apart?
0: Well, aside from being curious and functional human beings with a healthy (laughs) desire to understand why things are the way they are. Um, Also want to mention at the top of the episode, because people will have likely noticed already um we are back down to uh robin and myself for recording oh, yeah. savannah is going to be taking a step back she is going to be filling more of a role of an executive producer um which we and are
1: incredibly grateful for
0: we are very grateful for um she will still be joining us on the unscripted episodes which will be the next one will be next week's episode will be mm-hmm. an unscripted one and it will be out. We'll talk about this a little more later, but it will be out of this series. It'll be separate um, or only tangentially related. And there will be uh, hopefully we're talking about some other projects with her in the future things that um, she is interested in pursuing. Uh, but for the time being, uh, it's uh Back to Robin and I as your hosts, Savannah will be present in, in, in research. And like yes. I said, about, about once a month in the unresearched episodes. So that said, we want to repeat something, uh, that's also really important about this conversation that we're having about nationalism at times. We're going to refer to groups of people in general terms, talking about things they quote did, um, or ideals. They again, quotes share. We fully acknowledge that every group is made up of individuals and that the movement of the whole does not always reflect the thoughts or feelings of any individual within the group itself. We are in no way implying that every person in any group thinks or feels or behaves in the same way. We are just trying to give you the, the fullest picture we can Without, without going like to every single person in these groups and going, so why do you feel this way? Why do you right. think this way? Um, that would be literally impossible.
1: Yeah. It's, when you talk about stuff like this, you have to speak in a collective sense because otherwise it just, it gets really complicated. So now that we have established all of those important things, let's talk about where we're headed in this episode The way that we see it, the most logical place to start building this picture is to begin looking at how Christianity, and evangelicalism specifically, and nationalism became so intertwined. Um, Honestly, it feels like a story that's as old as America itself. So we're going to tell it using primary sources that illustrate the mindsets that contributed to this process, and then we'll talk through the the specifics of why things were that way.
0: This uh, following is a quote from, oh boy, Hector Saint-Jean de Crevecule. <laughs> I have no idea if that's been pronounced correctly. Um, he was a, a, an American farmer in 1782. What was that?
1: So he's dead, so he won't be mad about he's it. He's dead,
0: yeah. But I'm sure somebody else still <laughs> has that name. So forgive us. So he said, I wish... I could be acquainted with the feelings and thoughts which must agitate the heart and present themselves to the mind of an enlightened Englishman when he first lands on this continent. He has arrived on a new continent. A modern society offers itself to his contemplation, different from what he had hitherto seen. It is not composed, as in Europe, of great lords who possess everything and a herd of people who have nothing. Here, are no aristocratical families, no courts, no kings, no bishops, no ecclesiastical dominion, no invisible power giving to a few a very visible one, no great manufacturers employing thousands, no great refinements of luxury. He sees a parson as simple as his flock, a farmer who does not riot on the labor of others, We have no princes for whom we toil, starve, and bleed. We are the most perfect society now existing in the world. Here, man is free, as he ought to be. Nor is this pleasing equality so transitory as many others are. A mixture of English, Scotch, Irish, French, Dutch, Germans, and Swedes, from this promiscuous breed that race, now called Americans, have arisen.
1: Even from this country's earliest days, this sense of pride, this American exceptionalism, has been palpable. There was a sense that those who had arrived on these shores had carved out a new space, created a new nation. And it was a nation that they could be proud of. And that's how author and editor of the National Review, Rich Lowry, describes the idea of nationalism. He calls it a love of one's national culture, language, history, institutions, holidays, and everything good in a nation. Quoting Israeli political scientist Azar Gat, he says, it is the doctrine and ideology that a people is bound together in solidarity, fate, and common political aspirations.
0: God, I think I just heard a bald eagle cry. <sighs> yes. Like, I don't know about you but that pretty much conjures up images of saluting men in uniforms and 4th of July parades and Lee Greenwood music videos. That sounds like one of the highest ideals of American culture, patriotism. But patriotism and nationalism are, in reality, two very different things. Interestingly, just a fun fact, if you go to the wikipedia article for nationalism the very first thing you see under the header is not to be confused with patriotism and it highlights patriotism so you can go to that page if that's what you're actually looking for but like it's like the first sentence it's like it's not even part of the article itself it's above the article like before anything else um and this this will prove to be an important distinction as we're working to understand the current brand of Trump conservatism later on. And so what does that distinction look like? So let's take a look at the broad definition of nationalism as defined in Containing Nationalism by Michael Hector. Nationalism, he says, is defined as collective action designed to render the boundaries of the nation congruent with those of its governance units
1: yeah that, that definition's uh, crystal clear right
0: yeah that it, yeah totally I totally understood it I have full grasp of everything that was intended to be communicated with that sentence and we can move on um, <laughs> it is a bit more academic than is useful for our purposes so let's break it down into something a little more functional shall we Collective action is a phrase that is easy enough to understand on its surface. It's the actions taken by a group of individuals towards a common goal. This phrase comes up a lot when discussing the ideas of government, the state, sociology. Governments are formed by collective action. This doesn't mean governments are formed by the actions of the majority, but just a group of actors working together. So here's a familiar example for most Americans. At its simplest... Democracy is the attempt to allow most of a society to form the laws and guidelines that represent and benefit the majority. So democracy is the collective action of a majority. And we're going to set aside more nuanced concepts like protecting minorities and representational democracies and how the democracy of America currently functions and how the majority sometimes loses elections. Those are all byproducts of how we have enacted democracy, not democracy itself. Authoritarianism, on the other hand, most frequently presents as a government formed by an extreme minority, like the heads of state or the military or both, right? This still counts as a group of people working together, even though the benefits land with a very small group of people. So this is also a form of collective action.
1: The boundaries of a nation in this definition can also be a little confusing because we're used to thinking of nations as areas on a map. We're kind of lazy in our speech sometimes, so nation gets conflated with country in everyday speech. And by and large, that's fine. But the the actual definition of a nation is more about the people in a geographic area than the actual area itself. A nation is a natural society in a specific place that shares language, customs, and history, which is distinct from other groups based on things like race and other unique characteristics. This group of people doesn't necessarily need to be under the same government, even. For example, the Navajo Nation is spread across northeastern Arizona, New Mexico, and Utah. That's three different state governments. But the Navajo Nation is one nation. So by talking about a nation, Professor Hector is talking about a group of people that are, at least at a high level, culturally the same.
0: The final bit to make this definition useful is pinning down what is meant by a governance unit, which is the, such a stilted term, but it's pretty straightforward. For, um, It means the actual government organization that forms the laws and rules that society functions under. Since the focus of this series is on national-level politics, uh, and former President Trump and his influence on that, we'll say that the federal government is the governance unit in this instance.
1: So when we put all that together, nationalism is when a group of people who share things in common, like values, beliefs, language, and race— work together to ensure that the federal government reflects those values, those beliefs, that language, that race, and importantly, maintains the distinctions between what forms the group and everyone who is not in that group. In the nationalist mindset, a nation should govern itself, free from outside influence, and is built around a shared national identity. Nationalism is inherently inclusionary to those that are in the group, taking action, and exclusionary to everyone else. It might be overly simplistic, but one way of understanding this that made sense to me is that patriotism is a feeling, that swelling sense of pride, a strong conviction that your nation is exceptional. Nationalism, on the other hand, is action-oriented. It's the proactive reinforcement of the specific characteristics and boundaries of the group. And we've seen that come and go in waves throughout America's history.
0: We've also seen other important aspects of our history interact with nationalism in some really specific ways that are highly relevant to the prologue of the story we're telling here, namely white supremacy and Christian supremacy. Though both of these concepts dominated the the Western world at the time of America's founding, the way these three concepts, nationalism, white supremacy, Christian supremacy, the reason, the way they all worked together together, to create the idea of what is meant or what it meant to be an American for most of the country's history is really where the groundwork is laid. And as it turns out, white Christian nationalism may be older than the nation itself. It's something I noticed in the quote that we read, actually, at the top. If you listen to the list of countries that were included <laughs> in what made America. Right. England, Scotland, Ireland, France, Denmark, Germany, Sweden. They all share something in common. Mm-hmm. And that is a not a refined palette uh, for food (laughs) it is (laughs) a very narrow palette of color for skin tone yes Um, and it's interesting to me that even in 1782 when discussing what made this person proud of america what the new arrival in america would experience and what would over overwhelm them with awe boiled down to the mixture of these, this very narrow band of cultures and societies from one very narrow region of the world. Mm-hmm. Even though, even though there were full on societies in America before they arrived. Yes. And there were these other cultures in the Caribbean island, Caribbean, excuse me. And the, 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 shall we say, forced labor that we were importing from other countries yeah all that this person was focused on in what made them proud and what they were would would consider to be the point of awe for new arrivals is these white folks yeah <laughs> It just it it stuck out to me like a sore thumb in that quote
1: yeah i mean at that Not point by 16 by 1782 We had more than 160 years of European settlers interacting with Native Americans and Africans who were brought over here. And so for that list to only include those nations.
0: Not even all of Europe. No. You know, like he did very specifically listed countries and didn't say you know, the great melting pot of European nations right. that is now America, right? Like he could, he could have been more inclusive even just with Europe and was like, nope, no, no, no. Yeah. These guys.
1: Yeah, well, and it's really interesting because um, way back on our Columbus Day episode, right? We had talked about the struggle that Italians went through to even be considered mm-hmm. Americans. Italians are not on that list. But right. we, like at that point in time, Christopher Columbus had been given credit for discovering the new world, but Italians were not on that list. Right. Spaniards, Spaniards were not on were that list.
0: Not on that list. Just very, I, I found that it, it was, hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you could only be from these nations. You could only speak English and maybe German or Dutch or something, you know, in that family. Yeah. But like, eh, let's not get into the Romance languages. Oh, I guess France, French. So, I don't know. The, the dividing line, as always, was seems to be very arbitrary.
1: Right. Uh, and, yeah, so, so if that quote gave you a good idea of, of the whiteness of America, right, the, the Eurocentricity of what it meant to be That's- American, uh, this quote, which is even older, 1638, a man named Thomas Tillam, uh, upon his first sight of New England as he sailed in, he said... Hail, Holy Land, wherein our Holy Lord hath planned his most true and holy word. Hail, happy people who have dispossessed ourselves of friend and means to find some rest for your poor wearied souls, oppressed of late for Jesus' sake, with envy, spite, and hate. To you that blessed promise truly is given of sure reward, which you'll receive in heaven." What we hear reflected in Tillam's words is one of the strongest themes found in American Christianity, especially in America's earliest days. There was this idea that for all the persecution the true and faithful church was facing in its European homelands, the remedy and escape was the new world. America was, to many fleeing Christians, the promised land, and they were the long-suffering people of Israel, figuratively, of course. When the first settlers landed on the East Coast, they carried with them the perspective that the nation, and remember the definition that we laid out before, that they were building was inherently a Christian one. And there was never a time at which they considered that it could be, in the most existential understanding of the word, anything else. The values, the characteristics, the beliefs, the behaviors, and the culture they all shared were entrenched in Christianity.
0: And if we're using, if we're using a a definition of nationalism that is defined by exclusionary uh, enforcement, I think we need to talk about that a little bit, actually, because we didn't talk about inclusive nationalism versus exclusive nationalism yet.
1: Oh yeah, that's right.
0: So, there are to rewind a little bit, forgive me. There are ways to enact a nationalist mentality to arrive at a place where the government and then the nation that the government represents, right, that culture, those people, those values, that they are in alignment. There are two ways to, to do it, basically. You can make something that I think I've termed, but I've derived it from what I was reading, an inclusionary nationalistic society, which means that every time the nation, the culture that you are part of encounters another nation, you change the definition of your nation to encompass that one as well. So you blend them together. And what this looks like is, um, like two streams forming into a single river. Before, the, before they meet, those streams are independent. They have their own stories, their own course, their own history. But as soon as they touch, as soon as those two cultures begin to blend, those two streams begin to form into one, they've created a new stream, a new river. And at that juncture, at that point, you have a new nation. So if group A meets group B and they combine... Their independent nations now form Group C, a new nation. And their government, therefore, then changes in this sort of inclusive nationalism. Their government changes to reflect this new nation and this new set of shared cultures and values, right? And given enough time, the people within that nation will never think of a time. They'll never conceive of the two separate nations that formed it. The Mississippi River at the Louisiana Delta doesn't remember anything about being the Missouri River up by St. Louis. It at By that point, it has changed so much that it is, it is not identifiable with that. In the same way, American society in 2022 doesn't think about how it used to be Dutch and German and... English and Scottish like we don't identify as those things first and we couldn't tell you what it was like to be part of those cultures mm-hmm. because it was hundreds of years ago now you can like identify as like oh yeah I'm descended from people from there but that is a different thing and in this way you can build an a a a Nationalistic government that is inclusive. The other way that we have all um, experienced and that we all know is an exclusive nationalism. And that is where we'll say nation A meets Nation B and says no, you are not allowed in to you're not allowed to be part of us. You, your culture, is distinct. Your culture is different, and we do not want it. Now, in reality, that looks a l- that looks pretty rough, and we've seen it in a lot of ways enforced in America, and things that we've talked about here, um, and we'll talk about in the future. But the most obvious version of this sort of exclusionary nationalism looks like concentration camps, it looks like gas chambers, it looks like bombing entire cities of your neighbors because you don't like them or you think they're different. And this exclusionary nationalism very rarely, in fact I can't think of a time where it has ever really allowed two nations to coexist in a similar geographic location without conflict. The the group that is trying to exclude the other group will very often, as far as history has shown us, seek to eradicate the group that they don't like. And largely that's because the people in charge end up holding these grudges and then the younger generations are like, well, I don't have any reason to hate them. And they're like, well, we can't have you mixing. We can't have you marrying. We can't have you forming one nation. So we'll just kill them. Right. That's a hypothesis. I can't really support that, but that's what I've.
1: I feel like This that's a solid pattern of observation.
0: And um, yeah, so that's it. Right. <laughs> Inclusionary nationalism looks like okay, we see you, you're different than us, you can come in and be part of our society, help us form our government, help us decide how we're going to run. Now we are one nation. Exclusionary nationalism is, no, screw you, we're going to kill you.
1: Right. And so then if we're using that inclusive, exclusive definition of nationalism, um, then, you know, does that help explain why when these European Christian settlers uh, encountered the Native American people who, you know, were already here, they decided not to include them as a part of their nation as they saw it
0: and i think absolutely based on what we you know what i just explained early accounts of america are filled with stories of well-meaning christians trying to convert and baptize and quote civilize the savage native people they found themselves surrounded by The behaviors of these people stood in direct opposition to the values of this new nation of settlers. There are some absolutely stunning firsthand accounts in some of the first episodes of this show in our series of Systemic Racism, where we talk about the brutal means by which the Christian settlers tried to impress their own culture on the First Nations people. And then, of course, there is the perception that the early settlers had that disease and war and famine among the native nations was the hand of God working in their favor.
1: Right. Another primary source here, uh, John Archdale, um, who was just a, a settler in the Carolinas at that point in time, said, I shall give you some further eminent remark hereupon, and especially in the first settlement of Carolina, where the hand of God was eminently seen in thinning the Indians, to make room for the English. As, for example, in Carolina, in which were seated two potent nations, called the Westos and the Serena or the Savannah, which contained many thousands who broke out into an unusual civil war and thereby reduced themselves into a small number, and the Westos, the more cruel of the two, were at last forced quite out of that province, and the Savannas continued good friends and useful neighbors to the English. But again, it at other times pleased Almighty God to send unusual sickness among them, as the smallpox, etc., to lessen their numbers so that the English, in comparison to the Spaniard, have but little Indian blood to answer for. Now the English, at first settling in small numbers, there seemed a necessity of thinning of the barbarous Indian nations, and therefore, since our cruelty is not the instrument thereof, it pleased God to send, as I may say, an Assyrian angel to do it himself." An Assyrian angel is like the angel of death,
0: right? Mm,
1: Yeah, that's from 1822.
0: Yeah, Um, it's such a problematic quote. What's interesting to me is that a lot of the people these days, a lot of the people from 2022 who are trying to push back on this idea that the American settlement of the United States uh, happened sort of relatively bloodlessly because the native populations were already weakened and decimated by uh infighting and famine and and disease they point to stuff like this and they're like see like that wasn't that's not the settlers fault that's not white people's fault that's because the natives couldn't manage their own business yeah they they were so
1: barbaric that they just they would have killed each other off if we hadn't intervened
0: right um Which is uh, just—it's—it's just uh, enabling uh, enablement of (sighs) racist undertones and mentalities by any other name. Saying something like that because we do—we have the records, we have the documents, we have the the history to show how the arrival of Europeans directly impacted and negatively um, affected native populations. <laughs> These are not mysteries. Yeah. At the same time, <laughs> African slaves were being imported in growing numbers and multiplying once they arrived. Again, the brutality with which they were treated is well documented and frankly stomach turning and some of my least favorite reading I have ever had to do. Same. Um and we're not going to spend the time as part of this story to recount those stories. But the common thread of violence and oppression in those stories highlights yet again the action-oriented nature of nationalism. A core tenet of Christianity is having no other gods than the God of the Bible. If you are a Christian nation, then you cannot allow other religions to exist in your nation. There is a literal mandate to convert them, or drive them out, or eliminate them. Established tradition allowed for the capture and enslavement and forced conversion of heathens. And that is what we saw with the first non-whites this new nation encountered.
1: Right. And, and notice that we said established tradition there for a specific reason. Because I think today there are very few people who would try to make the case that, that like the core tenets of Christianity allowed for that. Or that any reasonable understanding of, of the Bible or the, the text that they were using at that time in, in our sensibilities would, um, would allow for that. But it was established tradition at that point.
0: Uh, yeah, so that's, it was the mentality of, of um, the Great Commission and right. the Ten Commandments working together that sort of brought this into, uh, shall we say, uh, doctrine, dogma if not actually explicitly said in the Bible. Right. I just realized I said Great Commission and I never actually explained what the Great Commission was or is. Um, so this is me showing my <laughs> uh, born in the Bible belt and grew up there. So the Great Commission is a, a, a verse in the Christian Bi- Bible and it is most often, hold on a second, I, I want to pull the verse to make sure. Matthew twenty eight nineteen and 20. Go ye therefore
1: into all nations.
0: Yep. It says in the Bible, it says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So this is a, a basically an order that Jesus gave to his followers before ascending into heaven. <laughs> so, and yes. that it's like, whoo, Out of context, sounds really crazy to say that, but um, yeah, it, this is this is sort of considered to be the core um, purpose of the especially evangelical Christian church. That is why you exist, to go out, to witness, to do these these mission trips is what we call them, mm-hmm. and to spread the gospel and to bring followers into the fold. So that's the Great Commission. Sorry. Yes, I wanted to nice. make sure we clarified that for people who did not have that baseline understanding of something that we kind of take for granted.
1: Yeah. And that's where that tradition comes from, and that um, that interpretation was, uh, you know, go out into the nations and and make disciples of them, whether they like it or not. Uh, yeah. As time went on, though, and the identity and practices of America became more established, these Christian Americans found themselves facing a dilemma. The number of Native American peoples who presented as friendly to Christianity had grown. More and more slaves were being born on American soil to parents who had also converted to Christianity. And so the otherness of the other was fading. I know, right? That could Wait. have been a great thing.
0: Except... Right. But when you're an exclusionary nationalistic society, that's dangerous. Yes. The other is so is suddenly becoming less other. That's a threat.
1: That's a threat. And... We have the added problem that the settlers were running out of land and resources, and the colonies' economies were profoundly dependent on slave labor to provide for themselves. Consciously or unconsciously, they needed a new justification for their continued mistreatment of Africans and Native Americans. And so this is where we begin to see white Christian nationalism take root in America. It's not that these people had never thought to be racist before. That's not the point that we're making. What we're trying to point out here is that the definition of the nation, the group with shared characteristics, had to shift. And it shifted to include one more shared characteristic, skin color. Or I should more, it's, it is more appropriate to say ethnic origin.
0: Yeah, I was to say because it i mean it may have started out as skin color but then we saw it get down to like um blood percentage of your right. you know of your blackness if you will
1: right and and again this is where we see things like italians not being included even though you could in many cases put an italian and an englishman next to each other and not be able to tell the difference right
0: um we've just insulted two nations of people who are probably going to hunt us down now but listen. you know what we mean
1: Listen, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. I'm not going to make a joke about how <laughs> they all look the same, but I really want to. <laughs> okay.
0: Beyond the pale.
1: Beyond the pale. Yeah. Right. So this this definition of a nation, these characteristics, had to shift so that uh, Africans and Native Americans could continue to be othered. Um, And so... And this is, this is, again, even before the Constitution was, was created, this is where we begin to see the idea that to be an American is to be white. And from that time forward, the extent to which the popular definition of an American included either whiteness or Christianity has kind of shifted back and forth in, in percentages and, and weight, but both have remained a steady part of the foundation of America
0: think uh bob jones
1: yeah we get to fast forward quite a bit we're gonna fast forward and i don't know like 200 years here
0: yeah but i think it highlights how this like <laughs> this definition it might shift it might change but the like roots of it stay the same so this is from bob jones evangelical leader and founder of bob jones university Uh, on Easter, I believe. Yeah, this was his Easter address in
1: 1960. right? On the radio, it was a radio broadcast.
0: Radio, yeah. So very uh, timely for this episode. Um, Happy late Easter, (laughs) for those of you listening to this, the day (laughs) after uh, Easter. Um, He said, I want you folks to listen, you white and you colored folks. Do not let these satanic propagandists fool you. This agitation is not of God, it is of the devil. Do not let people slander God Almighty. God made it plain. God meant for Christian people to treat each other right. If you are a Christian white person or a Christian colored person, you will treat each other right. We Christians are children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. We are one in Christ. But let us remember that the God who made of one blood all nations also fixed the boundaries of their habitations. Wherever we have the races mixed up in large numbers, we have trouble. They have trouble in New York, they have trouble in San Francisco, they have had trouble all over California. God never meant for America to be a melting pot to rub out the line between the nations. That was not God's purpose for this nation. When someone goes to overthrowing his established order and goes around preaching pious sermons about it, that makes me sick. For a man to stand up and preach pious sermons in this country and talk about rubbing out the line between the races, I say it makes me sick. The trouble today is a satanic agitation striking back at God's established order. That is what is making trouble for us. Kind of on the nose.
1: Yeah, I just. You know, sometimes history just gives you exactly what you need,
0: right when you need it. I had to. <laughs> I had to hold myself back from a dramatic interpretation, a dramatic reading <laughs> of those lines, because I think I've actually heard this broadcast before.
1: And oh, it's, yeah. um,
0: if it's the one I'm thinking of, it's very impassioned.
1: <laughs> right. So. It harkens back, like it brings me right back to the episode that we did on the Fairness Doctrine. We were talking about Carl McIntyre. Um, right. He actually came up a lot in the research on this section and and just kind of this push for white evangelicalism uh, in America. Just that, that old-timey preacher on
0: the radio. Yeah. We all, we all know what they – you know what he sounds exactly. like. Exactly. You know.
1: <laughs> so, so this highlights this, – this quote right here highlights one of the most significant shifts that led white evangelicals to the level of political involvement that we see today. Um, and that, that shift was the Brown versus Board of Education decision in 1954. And then the subsequent push from there out for greater, greater civil rights for black Americans. White evangelicals, refusing to accept what they believed to be an encroachment on their liberty and way of life, turned instead to private Christian institutions that could maintain their policies of segregation, but also held tax-exempt status. In 1964, the passage of the Civil Rights Bill threatened to revoke that tax-exempt designation if these schools continued to refuse Black students. President Johnson's Great Society programs and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 then further disheveled the otherwise orderly and segregated world of white evangelicals. Prominent leaders at the time argued that this was not only the overreach of the federal government stepping on local autonomy, but that the government was turning its back on white Americans and favoring black and Latinx Americans.
0: By the 1970s and the 1980s, white conservative evangelicalism had become essentially fused with the Republican Party, forming what we now know as the religious right. Issues like prayer in schools, abortion, and the Heart celler Immigration Act had run afoul of the group's sensibilities. Movement figureheads like Paul Weyrich, Weyrich, can't remember. I think Weyrich. it's Weyrich. Weyrich. I don't
1: know. I don't know. I've ever heard it said out loud.
0: I know. I read these in my head flawlessly every time. Movement figureheads like Paul Wyrick saw this discomfort as an opportunity to galvanize the evangelical base for political gain. The new political philosophy, Wyrick said, must be defined by us, us being conservatives, in moral terms, packaged in non-religious language and propagated throughout the country by our new coalition his rallying point five five points if you guess this his rallying point was nostalgia america needed to return to the christian ideals it once held when political power is achieved the moral majority will have the opportunity to recreate this great nation the leadership Moral philosophy and workable vehicle are at hand, just waiting to be blended and activated, he wrote. If the moral majority acts, results could well exceed our wildest dreams. The
1: story that these leaders told went something like this. America was once a nation committed to God, but the sins of materialism, new sexual and gender norms, and a lack of religious commitment had led this great nation to moral and religious decline. The only solution that these leaders argued was to turn to the past as a model for how to move forward. It would serve as a checklist to guide the political and religious agenda of the future. If we could only recreate the country's past norms— We might be able to reclaim or revive its status as a godly nation with a transcendent global mission. This is where Presidents Reagan, and then Trump 30 years later, drew the inspiration for their campaign slogans. Let's make America great. Again.
0: Myrick and other leaders believed that the best way to reclaim or restore this identity was through political power. They needed to gain and maintain control of all three branches of government, and this is the playbook that the Christian right has been using for the last 40-plus years. The strategy is essentially to elect the right president, who will in turn appoint the right Supreme Court justices, and then those justices will then overturn decisions that the group believes have undermined America's Christian foundations. But that brings us to an important core theory in this conversation. Dr. Lauren Kirby summed it up very clearly, I think, in her article about the experiences touring Washington, D.C. with evangelical groups. She said, At the heart of white Christian nationalism is a custodial relationship to the nation. In this view, it is the duty of Christian patriots to keep the nation on a righteous course.
1: And it makes sense. If you believe that America was founded on Christian principles by men and women who never imagined that it could be anything other than a Christian nation, and then you experience what you believe to be a significant divergence from the guiding principles of Christianity, then of course you will feel compelled to take action to bring the country back into alignment, especially if you buy into the idea that America was once blessed— but it is now suffering the consequences of turning away from God. I don't know how many times I have heard that, that the, there's a, a scripture that talks about if, uh, if the people who are called by my name will basically stop sinning and come back to me, I will bless their country. Um, and this is a narrative that, that is pervasive in evangelical churches even now. If we can just get back to where we were, then God will bless our country again.
0: Right. we are we are we have somehow for the last 30 years that I have been a- aware, we have been in a moral backslide in America ever since I can remember, you know, like right in the 90s, we are, are we are drifting from God. And in, in the early 2000s, we are straying from God. Mid-teens, we have lost our path like America. Has gone. It's, it, it is. It is. And it goes back way farther as we've just discussed than, than that. Like it is, it is, it is the constant and steady refrain of this particular type of political ideology. Evangelical groups efforts to get us quote back on track have only grown since the early days of the moral majority. Reports estimate that since 2007, religious groups have spent more than $190 million on campaigns to influence issues that matter to them like LGBTQ plus policy and abortion rights. And I would I would personally speculate that that number is very much on the low side.
1: Oh yeah, that's just what they that can find. Find. They can
0: track, and there's an yeah. extra
1: ninety million dollars in there that I left out that went um, to foreign uh, partner organizations right. to influence policy in other countries. But since we're talking about nationalism um, and how how this group is working here in the United States, I I left that ninety million out.
0: Yeah, that that is that is only what has been explicitly spent and tracked and recorded as uh, going to these campaigns, but. <sighs> I know at least in two of the churches that I have been to, that was basically their entire reason for existing. Like mm-hmm. in some way, every Sunday that I was there, every Wednesday night, every every time I was at church, it always came back to, we have to go out. We have to uh, save this nation. We have to uh, support our our political leaders that, you know, support our foundational beliefs. We need to be active. We need to be involved. Um, they're a constant, um, mobilization power. So I would, I would bet since 2007, like realistically, if you take into account all of the money that goes into operating and, and running these churches and, and, they're everything that they exist for, we're looking at billions of dollars.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Easily. And many of those same organizations also found themselves closely affiliated with Donald Trump during both his 2016 and his 2020 campaigns, and most likely, at least the way he's talking right now, his 2024 campaign.
1: That'll be the last episode in the series, but I'm going to have some thoughts when we get there. But the fact is that the folks who are a part of these organizations, and even the voters that are funding them, have been primed for this for their entire lives. The average Trump voter was 57 years old in 2016. These voters and the evangelical leaders who run the organizations that they support had their political perspectives shaped during the rise of the Christian right. Their entire political lives have been formed by the idea that the pursuit of political power was the best way to return America to its Christian values and to regain that city-on-a-hill status in a global society. So when Trump emerged as the GOP's go-to guy in 2016, the evangelical base had, a, had to find a way to justify their support of him as part of their overall goal of regaining America's Christian and arguably white identity.
0: And that's where we're going to pick up on May 2nd, when we'll explore just how we got to the point where evangelicals were able to justify their support of Trump as a candidate twice and probably thrice Uh, And that's just because I like to use that word and how that caused quite a significant rift and continues to cause a rift in the church itself. The whole reason we're having, we had this question to begin with. Um, I have like a boatload of thoughts about this because when you, when we like, I've, these are as we were researching this and as we were writing this, like these are all ideas that I have encountered or expressed or felt expressed in one way or the other over and over and over again and it's just so stark to see it laid out like it is here like how we've covered it and obviously as we've always said this it's more complex than we are able to cover in a single hour but or even a series of hours but to me it is still a clear path and it something that People who feel this way, including myself, like to be clear, I used to feel this way. I used to pursue these tactics and I bought into this completely. That is the society, the culture that I was raised in. And I fully bought into this and committed. And it is stunning to me still that we have been unable for people who felt like I did to show how just because these settlers, just because these colonists felt and believed a certain way when they arrived, doesn't mean that that's the principles that the nation was built on, that the nation was founded on because the nation, our constitution, very explicitly guarantees and protects freedom of religion Mm -hmm. which means not just christianity it means all religions can compete and we're very explicitly set up to not have a religious test for political office very explicitly we have our founding fathers for better or for worse um, sought to split the operation of the country from its moral moorings, basically. Because I think they understood they had experienced enough of the world, they were traveled enough, they were broad, broadly educated enough to understand that the world is big and people are broad, and nations cannot be built on a very homogeneic society. You need people from all walks of life, from all belief systems, from all skin colors, you Nazis, to bring their beliefs in and bring their ideas in and make sure that our country works For everybody and sometimes that looks really messy and sometimes it looks like we debate each other and sometimes it looks like laws that should be passed don't get passed and laws that shouldn't be passed do get passed because the pendulum swings constantly but ultimately what it means is that the pendulum never stays pinned to one side or the other because that is exactly the wrong thing for a country to thrive And we've got to do a better job instilling that understanding in the members of our nation or this nation that we have that is beautiful and complex and fractured and incredible. It will cease to exist. And realistically, it's going to cease to exist no matter what. Right but we can decide whether or not it's going to cease to exist because it plunges itself into flames or because it grows and blends and becomes something better.
1: That was a good speech.
0: Thanks. I just made it up. (laughs) If you thought it was a great speech, why don't you let me know too? I would really appreciate it. You can do that on our website, firesidebreakdowns.com. Um, There you can find our show notes, you can find uh, our episodes, you can find links to our socials, and now you can find the link to our YouTube, where our most recent episodes are being uploaded. We have quite a backlog to get through for the old episodes. Honestly, I'm not going to make any promises about when those are going to be up. Someday. 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 Um, You can also find uh, a link to our Patreon if you would like to support us financially uh, with (laughs) Savannah taking a a more um, active role in the management of Fireside Breakdowns. Hopefully, we will be better about actually following through with the things that we are supposed to do on that. Uh, We need to set up a happy hour for the supporters that we do have. Thank you very much. Uh, We are going to do that hopefully relatively soon, the next couple of months, I think, um, and get back on track there. If you like what we do here, if you think that this is a good thing and should be seen or heard by more people please 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 leave us a review it is literally the most important thing that you can do for us and for this show i would say probably even more important than becoming a patron mm-hmm. so just leave a review it takes a couple minutes we have cool link on our um i think it's in the show notes and yeah. uh, on the website or if you listen on spotify you can do it like right there be super cool. Be amazing. Super cool if you did.
1: We would appreciate it so much. Yeah,
0: we sure would. It would be good Let's news. Let's talk about is what it would some be. of that good news. Let's do it. Like Let's do this good, good news.
1: So, this I am reading to you directly from an article from MIT News because they said it a lot better than we could have. Uh, the biotechnology company, Frequency Therapeutics, is looking to reverse hearing loss, not with hearing aids or implants, but with a new kind of regenerative therapy. The company uses small molecules to program progenitor cells, which are a descendant of stem cells, in the inner ear to to create the tiny hair cells that allow us to hear, basically. These hair cells die off when they're exposed to loud noises or drugs, including certain chemotherapies or antibiotics. Um, So frequency's drug candidate is designed to be injected into the ear to regenerate these cells within the cochlea. In clinical trials, the company has already improved people's hearing as measured by tests of speech perception, the ability to understand speech and recognize words, which is one of the most important parts of hearing. That's one of the reasons that is so valuable for us to hear is to be able to understand speech. In Frequency's first clinical study, the company saw statistically significant improvements in speech perception in some participants after a single injection with some responses lasting nearly two years. The company has dosed more than 200 patients to date and has seen clinically meaningful improvements in speech perception in three separate clinical studies. There was one other study that failed to show improvements in hearing compared to the placebo group, but the company attributes that result to flaws in the design of the trial. Either way, this is promising news about how we might be able to leverage technology like this to improve health and wellness in the future. Super think cool. it's super
0: duper cool. Super cool. Um, and kind of how proper science is done. You have multiple trials. You seek to improve. You have control groups and placebos. And I'm just yes. saying, if your guy is telling you that they did something to three different people with this special miracle plant and it helped them, probably not. Legit. Not legit i think it's just super cool. i'm very excited for this to actually function because i would love to do something about the tinnitus that i have had since i was like a teenager i mean like literally like 14 or something like that wow. um yeah because of uh mowing the lawn without hearing protection
1: oh wow mm-hmm.
0: yeah crazy huh
1: that is crazy as a city kid i like that never occurred to me
0: Yeah, I had four acres to mow, so. it's a lot of acres. It's been a lot of time, a lot of time mowing. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, long days, long days. All right, I think that's it for today. You got to go dye some kids' hair. Yeah, I do. I've got to go do all the other things that I do (laughs) on weekends. So many things. So uh, I'll take us out. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Um, We very much look forward to speaking at you again uh, with our free flowing and completely chaotic unresearched episode next week uh, featuring Savannah. And until that point, take care of each other.